Hello and welcome to this new episode of the Brexit and Beyond series. My name is Clément Leroy and I'm Research and Policy Engagement at the European Institute and the Office of the Vice Provost for Research here at UCL. Today, it's my huge pleasure to welcome Derek Hill. Derek, you are Professor of Medical Imaging Science at UCL, but also a successful entrepreneur in the field of new technologies applied to health. So this double experience will be very interesting for the topic of today, which is medical devices and Brexit. Brexit news are not very good at the moment, with fears of a no-deal outcome growing every day. And we even hear that companies are starting to stockpile drugs and medical devices. So this is why we will see with Derek whether the UK would benefit from being an independent regulator for innovation applied to medical devices. So welcome again, Derek, and let's start with the basics. What are medical devices and how are they regulated at the moment? So medical devices are technologies that help with diagnosis, with prevention and treatment of, of illnesses. Um, and they're kind of defined as, as things that aren't drugs or aren't primarily drugs. They include numerous hardware and software technologies from brain scanners to hip implants, from scalpel blades uh, to radiotherapy machines, and from the metal stents used to widen blood vessels, like if you have a heart attack, um, through to the digital apps that you might have on a smartphone that can help you manage your, your health. Now, not surprisingly, medical devices, just like drugs, are very highly regulated. You can only bring a new medical device to market by either showing it's basically the same as something already on the market as a medical device for the same purpose, or by providing quite detailed evidence that the device you've developed is both safe and effective for the intended use, for, for, the, for the purpose which you're stating it can help with. Now, the amount of evidence you need to show that your medical device is safe and effective, the amount of evidence you need to show the regulators, depends on the risk of the device. So, for example, if it's a non-serious illness, uh, you need less evidence than it's for a critical illness. Um, and, and so everything depends on the risk. And the regulators have a very, very elaborate and detailed framework for um, deciding what evidence you need to bring your, drug, um, your medical device to market. Now, also, the manufacturers of medical devices need to have all the systems in place to develop those devices, um, to test those devices, and once they're on the market, to um, monitor them, what's called post-market surveillance, to make sure that they are performing as they should. So, as a company, not only do you have to follow all these procedures to get your drugs to market, you also have to have a, a, a lot of um, systems in place to make sure that you are uh, able to document and control everything very precisely. So that's, that's quite a big regulatory burden in a way. But are the regulators efficient and are they flexible enough to adapt to the fast-paced introduction of, of those technologies, of the new digital technologies? I think that's a, a really important question because arguably digital technologies which have transformed so many sectors of the economy, um, transport, uh, music, um, uh, the way people uh, communicate, all those things have been transformed by uh, digital technologies, things like ubiquitous computing and smart devices and clever sensors and connected everything. Um, but healthcare is, is, is arguably lagging. Um, and, and that some people do blame the regulators. They say that the problem here is that the regulators uh, aren't 
adapted, aren't, aren't ready for the new technology. Uh, some people even say we should ignore what the regulators say uh, and, 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 and just bring things that people want on the grounds that what people want should trump the rules. But um, for medical stuff, I think that's not, not the way things are going. Uh, and, and very importantly, um, the regulators have been aware of this for some time and have been changing their, um, their approach. So whereas medical devices traditionally were largely hardware, things like a hip implant, or hardware with some software on it, things like uh, uh, an MRI scanner, um, increasingly there's an awareness by regulators that some medical devices will just be software, or software with sort of sensors in a, in, in, in a smart device. Um, and they've been dramatically changing the way that they uh, think about this. Now, it's important to remember when you're talking about regulators that um, every country might have its own regulators, but but some countries, if you like, have, have more uh, influential regulators than others, partly because they've got bigger markets and partly because of the way they operate. So that, if you like, the regulatory superpowers for medical devices um, are the US through the FDA and the European Union um, through their medical devices regulation. So we've got this, um, these regulatory superpowers, others that are important. China is becoming increasingly important. Japan stays important. Uh, places like Canada, Australia, etc., have their own regulators, but they tend to piggyback off what the US and Europe do on the whole. So we've got a regulatory infrastructure, which is based on very, very large uh, organizations, FDA, the European Commission, and they haven't historically been agile. But, and this is important, there's been a lot of change in the last two or three years, and there's been new advice coming out um, about how software as medical devices should be brought to market. And in particular, one of the things I think that's most uh, uh, interesting about uh, this area is the way that the regulators are now working together. It's sort of international harmonization. The same happens in drugs, um, but in medical devices, you have something called the International Medical Device Regulators Forum, the IMDRF. And that is where the main regulators, Europe, the FDA, the Chinese, uh, the Canadians, the Brazilians, the Russians, uh, Japanese, etc., come together. And they do work to try and um, set the standards for regulation so that then will be adopted by the individual regulators so that there's a, a great deal more harmonization across, um, across jurisdictions, across, if you like, markets where you would sell things. And that's really important. And we've seen a lot of change in the way software is going to be treated over recent years, which means that there's now greater clarity, and that's improving, in how you would bring a medical app that's a medical device to market, for example. So regulation and more and more international in that field. But I guess that for the UK, the trick is you have to agree before at the European level. And I think this is where Brexit is coming into the debate. So one interesting question first is what would be the short-term consequences of Brexit for the medical device sector? Yeah, so in the short term, Brexit is providing a lot of uncertainty in medical devices as in other sectors. Um, it's worth noting that in the UK, the medical device sector, the most activity in medical devices comes from small companies. It's not like the pharmaceutical industry, which is dominated by the big companies. And of course, the smaller companies that make and develop medical devices don't tend to have subsidiaries in lots of other countries. Um, and they don't have very deep pockets. So for them, spending tens or hundreds of millions on Brexit preparedness, like the drug companies are doing, just isn't an option. Uh, and so the uncertainty at the moment is, is, is difficult for them because it may be that, you know, come Brexit, in order to sell their devices 
in the other European countries that are in the EU27 that, that don't leave. Um, they will need to set up subsidiaries in another European country or they'll need partnerships in other European countries or they will need to have a, um, a whole load of new paperwork to make sure that they, they're compatible with the regulations, um, which they're already compatible with, but they'll need to sort of duplicate things and have things operating in a different way. Um, and a, a big problem is that regulation of medical devices is done... Um, th by the Commission through notified bodies. Uh, and the notified bodies are organisations which um, are, 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 if you like, a lot of them are actually regulated by the UK MHRA on behalf of the European Commission. And the MHRA, the European regulator, um, UK bit, if you like, will become independent and won't be able to do that job anymore. And, and that that is a real problem if you're a medical device manufacturer and your, all your technology is approved through the uh, UK piece, and that suddenly it's no longer valid in the rest of Europe. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of, a lot of risk. And, and that's if you're marketing something. If you're developing a new medical device, well, that's a, a slightly different problem, um, but equally worrying. Again, it's uncertainty, because what can you and can't you do? For example, if you're collecting data from patients in the UK evaluating a, a medical device, will that data still be valid uh, for the other European countries? Um, will you be able to, if you're doing evaluation of medical device in lots of countries across Europe, some UK, some outside the UK, will you be able to bring all that data together, pool it in order to um, do your statistical analysis? Or will the, the data protection rules um, break on Brexit and you won't be able to treat the data you know, in the same way that you used to be able to uh, without going back to all the patients and getting consent to start again and saying, can we now transfer the data out of the EU? So there's a whole load of, of, of issues that, that come out about developing as well as selling medical devices, all of which are soluble but will take a long time. And of course, if, if, if people talk about a, a no-deal Brexit, they, 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 of course, in a sense, by definition, I mean, there will be no agreement on any of those things. And so for the medical device industry, it's going to be challenging. And, and they, as, as I said, they tend to be smaller companies. They haven't got the resources to sort it all out themselves. They are reliant on, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, the, the negotiations dealing with that. So short term, there's some real potential problems and risks in medical devices. So very, very problematic at yeah. the short term. But if we look at the longer term, yes. um, could we see Brexit as an opportunity to maybe for the UK to develop a more agile, as you said, system yeah. or um, framework that would be more friendly to those new products with new technologies? No, I think that's a really important question. And, and some politicians have argued that one of the opportunities from Brexit is to get away from the, if you like, the inertia, the slowness of um, regulatory change um, when you've got 28 countries that all have got to come to a consensus. Um, wouldn't it be easier for the UK to be innovative to have new and better ways of assessing whether digital technologies, for example, are safe and, safe and effective, rather than um, having um, the need to get everybody in all 28 countries to, to, to come to an, an agreement. Now, in fact, not many people in the industry uh, or, or, or sort of regulatory experts would, would agree with that. Um, and there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the UK could have a very different regulatory framework than everybody else in the world. But when you're developing a medical device product, you actually want to sell it 
everywhere in the world. So you have to be, any data you're collecting to evaluate your device, you want to be usable elsewhere. And so there has to be clarity about what you can do with the data and what the rules are. And so where there's uncertainty, that's, that's not necessarily helpful. But equally, where things are just different, because um, maybe it's better, but it's different, uh, that makes perhaps it, it harder to, to, to use that data elsewhere. And, and it doesn't make the UK an attractive place necessarily to develop things for that global market. So, so as, as a result, people often would argue it's better that the UK sticks with the European way of doing things, um, and that, uh, or if you're being very, very radical, you say, well, should the UK instead align itself with the US way of doing things? Um, but that would be a really dramatic change, and it's very unlikely the UK could have much direct influence with the FDA. Uh, it's perhaps more likely the UK could do a deal with Europe where it could have ongoing direct influence with the way the European regulation works. I mean, it's important to, to, to think that, you know, at, at the moment, the, the UK is very influential in the way Europe develops medical device regulations. Um, and um, that obviously will, will change after Brexit. Um, but one of the ways that um, the UK engages with the regulatory uh, ecosystem uh, globally is on behalf of the Commission, there's UK regulatory scientists from the MHRA, the, uh, the, the, the UK regulator in this area, um, currently working as part of the EU. They have people on four of the working groups of this IMDRF, this International Medical Device Forum. And so the UK is quite influential there. Um, and if the UK leaves the EU uh, 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 in a kind of cliff-edge scenario, um, it will no longer have that seat. But of course, it could it could get seats again on its own um, and so has the potential to continue to be influential at that international level of course and that influence is not just what Europe does but what the US does um, but that it will then have to adopt the same kind of regulation so it, 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 it can be influential but not at the level of just deregulation so I think the answer is that there are opportunities from Brexit in certain areas but there's also risks and most people in the air at the moment think that to manage the risks, it's probably best to stay close to Europe and do things the way Europe does. Yeah, because I think what you said about also the UK uh, getting maybe independent membership of this forum, mm. the government recognises itself that it could take years and years before having this full membership. So what, what would be the implication of that delay? Yeah, so that's a very good point. So in medical devices, um, the UK could apply to be an independent member of the IMDRF. Now, it can't do that yet because it's still in the EU. And also the government policy is to seek a, a, a close relationship with the EU. So it would continue to interact through the EU, not entirely independently. So they can't even start talking about that yet. But after the UK leaves the EU, it could start their conversation. But as you say, it might take some time. And uh, the application process and the other members have to consider it. And uh, it, it, it wouldn't be quick anyway. But if there's a kind of no deal Brexit, um, it may be that our, our friends in, in, in the rest of the EU aren't necessarily enthusiastic about supporting rapid membership of, of the UK. So I, I think that there's a, um, a need to be realistic that there will be a gap. There'll be a gap in which UK influence is reduced and that there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and so if you look at five plus years into the future, the UK could be back at a, a seat at the table being influential. But 
in between, there'd be a bit of a hiatus, a bit of a, a, a time of uncertainty in, in, and, and lack of influence. And that's exactly at the time when these clever digital technologies, um, software that can help um, do diagnosis or treatment. Um, you know, we heard just in the news this week about uh, a work done actually at UCL in combination with, uh, in collaboration with Google DeepMind. Um, at Moorfield Hospital, they were using images of the eye, um, which computers were, were sort of assessing in order to um, streamline the process of referring people to the right onward specialist. So you could streamline the diagnostic process for serious uh, illnesses that, that you pick up by looking at, at the eye. Now, that sort of work, which is based on a type of artificial intelligence called deep learning, is beginning to produce really, really interesting results. Um, but to get to patients, those things have to be a medical device. They have to be approved as a medical device or cleared as a medical device. And um, that will have to be done in, in, you know, those will get to patients soonest in the place which companies say, well, there's a very clear and straightforward process for getting those technologies to patients. Historically, the EU was a quicker place of getting software technologies to patients than the US, so often things would be marketed in, in Europe first, and that while they're on the market in Europe, more data would be collected, which would then support um, submission to the FDA. Um, you, you, and so, but it's quite likely that, that, that all this uncertainty that I was talking about that might arise from Brexit might mean that people are certainly not going to come to the UK first. Um, they might leave the UK till a lot later. So that could delay the time it takes for technology, even technology developed in the UK, like the, the, that, that work at Moorfield and, and Google DeepMind in London, would uh, actually get to patients in the UK much slower <laughs> than it gets to patients in, in other, other countries. So there's, there's some, there's some uh, opportunities um, from Brexit to, to do things differently. But actually, there's, there's so many risks. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's a lot of work needs to be done to balance those. Yeah. So, so maybe to conclude on a more positive or constructive yeah. note, uh, what could be done by universities or businesses to help government improve policy around life science issues in general after yeah. Brexit? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think in terms of life science technology, the sort of digital technologies or those used alongside drugs where you have like a some sort of digital app alongside a, a drug those are perhaps the area of, of most rapid technology change so those are in some ways the areas where regulations need to evolve and um, one of the problems with regulatory evolution is the fact that academics and entrepreneurs and regulators talk a rather different language that they don't um, necessarily understand each other's drivers each other's uh, motives very well perhaps a bit suspicious of each other uh, and that means they don't work together to come up with new ways forward and so one of the things that I think you know perhaps you can see coming from Brexit is to, to catalyze within the UK better working together between those sorts of groups and, and of course in universities you have both the academics and some of the entrepreneurs who can work with the regulators to say well what can we in the UK try to put on the table um, in terms of regulatory thinking which might be adopted by other people about the right way of getting innovative technologies to patients in a effective way which safeguards patient safety ensures that they actually really do work they're, they're effective and enables them to be updated as as the technology evolves without you know a five-year process um, uh, every time you do it so there is an opportunity i think uh, for the uk to do some innovative thinking and ultimately believe that good ideas if put on the table will be adopted uh, even if the uk is ceases to be part of a regulatory superpower as it leaves the eu Thank you so much, Derek, for your insight. That was very interesting. My pleasure.